Hi, and welcome to Still Loading, a podcast dedicated to exploring leadership for the digital age. My name is Ilona Brannan, and I am your host for this exploration and adventure. I have been fascinated by us humans and how we develop and the interplay with technology for over 20 years now, and I am so excited to be here with you. Leadership is a huge topic, which is so important to be able to create a future world that we want to be part of. And if you are someone who leads an organization, team, project, or simply looking to develop yourself, then this is the podcast for you. So strap on in, get set, and let's disrupt the leadership space to create better leaders for all of us. Now that's definitely worth listening to. Hi everyone and welcome to the Still Loading podcast. It's so nice to be back and I have a wonderful guest with me this week. It's actually a lady called Angela Hamilton and Angela works at the University of British Columbia. She's working at the Entrepreneur School and she's going to explain a little bit more about the work that she does there in this episode. But first of all, Angela, please just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, It's great to be here. So I'm an American. I live in Canada in Vancouver. Yeah, I'm a three-time impact entrepreneur and just love the idea of business as a means of helping people in whatever form that that takes. And I've been repeatedly inspired by the work that I've seen done by other people in the community. And yeah, just super excited to, to get to chat about it with you today. So thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. And if anyone has listened to the episode before about the London Writers Salon, which is around co-leadership, which was my unparalleled, this is actually how me and Angela met because I put a post out on that group to say, is anyone interested? And we got some responses and me and Angela really hit it off. So I'm really hoping one day to go to BC and spend some time with her and go visit some beaches. So it'll yeah. be great. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you said you're a three times impact entrepreneur. So what First of all, is an impact entrepreneur? Is that like a special type of entrepreneur? Or is it a particular program? And what have you been doing with those three time experiments? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, well, I think it's special. Impact entrepreneur basically just means that your desire to make change in the world is tied in some way to the business upside that you're having. In other words, so your revenue is tied completely with how many things you're diverting from landfills or, you know, that's that sort of thing. So we've seen some business models where those things are separated. And I really find that it's it's a little bit of a tough sell, I think, to move forward and to carry impact forward. Because of course, as you grow and as you scale, you you might get investors or board members coming on who are saying, you know, actually our bottom line might be better if we can like scooch this impact thing off to the side that you're doing. And so if you make sure that those things are married from the beginning, you have a better chance of creating something that has sustainable, you know, lasting huge impact, um, which is, of course, I think what everybody's kind of trying to do when they get into this. So my three ventures, my my first one was a nonprofit. It's called Super Snack. And I founded it in uh, 2005 in New York City. And it was basically a fundraising and event planning nonprofit. So we produced benefit events and fundraising campaigns for AIDS charities in New York and DC. That was really great. We uh, got lots of like grassroots movement and, and raised a lot of money and had some really great events there. And then in BC, I founded a Coop, which is a sharing economy platform. So it allows people to rent almost anything from people near them, kind of like Airbnb, but for pressure washers and snowboards and stuff. Now I'm working on Lane Editorial, which is my ghostwriting consultancy for impact entrepreneurs and change makers around the world. Three very different types of ventures, but all with the means of, in some ways, making the world better, amplifying stories from people who are doing that. Damn straight. That's what we need. <laughs> Would you yeah. share with us the story? Because you you shared it with me when we met before about yeah. um, 
how Coop came to uh, fruition, which yeah. I love because I'm a big romantic anyway, but like... <laughs> <laughs> In 2013, when my partner and I got together, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and he was living in Vancouver, and he's originally from South Africa. And so we're sort of floating this idea, like, where should we live and what should we do? And we thought about Vancouver and D.C., and we thought about Toronto, and he came up with this idea where he said, you know, I think we could both work if we both moved to Cape Town. And so I was like, well, yeah, like, uh, sign me up. Like, of course, I'm up for an adventure in Cape Town. And so we both kind of put all of our stuff into storage. I quit my job, I sold my car, and we moved to Cape Town. And we were intending to stay for, you know, six weeks or so to determine whether or not we could build a life there and, and have a life. And so on our second night in the city, someone broke into our flat while we were sleeping in the next room and they stole everything. So we, we lost our passports, we lost our driver's licenses, credit cards, of course, phones, chargers, computers, everything was gone except for some clothes and my guitar, which was in the bedroom with us. But other than that, they, they just took everything. And so it was that really scary moment of like, you're over in this other country, you have no identity, no money. Was such a crazy like wake up call and so we ended up being stuck in the country for quite a long time after that because grant at the time he wasn't a canadian citizen yet and so we had to do a lot of work to try to get the stars to align to get all his documents back in shape after that we decided it was maybe a little bit too much adventure for us and so we decided to move back to vancouver where he had had a business before and when we got here we were sleeping you know basically on an airbed that someone in an empty apartment that someone happened to have as they were moving apartments and so we didn't have anywhere to stay we didn't know anybody really yet but grant had a friend who was between apartments and so we stayed on an airbed in this guy's empty apartment and it was really shocking to me because i was like this is the very first time in my life that i've had an experience like this where I feel I'm devoid of community. I'm completely at loose ends here in this country that I don't live in. And all of my stuff is still in the United States and I don't have a job and I don't have anything. And so when I later went to the Center for Digital Media and I met my co-founders in Coop and they voiced this idea of we'd like to create a platform that allows people to like share resources within a community. And I thought back to that time and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what we needed back then. <laughs> like some way to access community and just stuff in a moment of like complete emergency and panic. So that's the big driving force and the emotion behind why that work was so important to me. I think that's brilliant. And I love the idea of actually sharing, you know, equipment that you probably only use once in a while. I'm quite lucky. I live in a small block of flats in London and yes. I know a couple of neighbors so I can borrow their drill or, mm -hmm. you know, like the screwdriver set from them then we can kind of keep it reciprocal but I mean British people are a bit weird in the sense we don't tend to like bother each other even if we live next door but <laughs> I think it's a great way to kind of build community in a in a city especially and also mm -hmm. to share resources like we have limited space I think that that's a really important piece also the idea that we don't have unlimited space to just store every single thing we could possibly ever own. We're living in smaller and smaller homes. And I think that that's beautiful. The idea that, you know, you can, you can share a drill with someone, not everybody in the apartment building needs to own one. The scariest story I heard when I was building Coop is the average cordless drill spends 15 minutes in operation, in actual operation between the time it's bought and the time it ends up in a landfill. And when I heard that statistic, I just thought like, oh my gosh, I'll multiply that by literally every other thing, you know, that we own, you know, your sewing machine or your, your snowboard or whatever it is. Most of the time, these objects sit in storage and it's a, it's a shame. So I do think that there's a lot of value that's kind of lost in that.
I can totally relate to that. And the other thing I think as well, because of the pandemic, especially in London and then the UK, you know, we're all working from home more. The constraints on our space is becoming even more pressurised because we have to almost have multifunctional homes to also have an office at home, to have a living space, a workout area, and almost be able to really utilise every square inch. So actually having excess stuff is going to be challenging because you need that space for multiple different things. Yes, that's so true. I think you're right. The pandemic has totally brought that home as we're, as we're sort of like trying to figure out still, I think, how to live in these small spaces in urban environments where I live and, and I guess you also live in there in London. Yeah, I think, you know, storage is less and, and our spaces need to be like really thought through very strategically about how we're going to live and what we bring into our lives. Yeah, I think that it would be really nice as well to build these sorts of sharing opportunities within your community to make more, you know, connections locally. So one of the things I loved about around here when it was like the pandemic was we had street pantries. Oh, what is that? It's where you sort of put excess food and bits and bobs in that area. So it's like a box in the street. And you can put it in those areas. And so if people need those items or they need some extra food or they need, you know, candles or light bulbs or something, there's it, it's in there. Wow, that's brilliant. And it got used, like it got well used. Yep. yep. Wow, that's so cool. So how did that initiative get started? Do you know? Someone just built the box and said neighborhood pantry and that's it. Just one day it was there and then everyone just keeps on putting stuff in there. That's incredible. I feel like, so it's interesting because I love initiatives like that, that just sort of happen on a grassroots level. And I feel like that's one thing in Canada that, you know, was a little bit of a culture shock actually to me when I moved up here is there's, there's very much a sense of like things have to go in a certain order. It has to follow certain rules or regulations. And so I think some, some grassroots initiative like that, if that were to happen, like it feels to me, I don't know, cause I haven't tested it, but it feels to me like if someone were to put it out there, the government might come along and be like, no, actually you have to go through these permitting processes in order to do that. And so it's a little bit of a different sense of, of that. It would be nice to see something like that though. I mean, we do have free book libraries, but they go through approvals. <laughs> so, sure. I mean, I imagine it would be a permit situation if it was bigger, but I think because it's literally a neighborhood thing, you know, it's just one off. I think it's when anything becomes bigger than sort of local neighborhood and becomes like a scalable thing, then it needs to be a permit. But it it is an interesting point of view because, yeah, I imagine it would be closed down if they actually found it. But hey-ho, we're just a bit rebellious around where I live in. We're just like, no, we're going to do what we want. I love that, though, because I think that's so important, like that that idea, whoever built that, whoever created that was just like, no, I see a need, I'm going to solve this problem, and I'm not going to necessarily get too bogged down in what the regulations say that is possible or whatever that is, which is totally how innovation happens. And that's what I'm really hoping to convey and and promote, because I, I think it's so important to have that feeling that like you can just go do something. With the work that you're doing at BC, tell us a little bit about what you do with the students. Yeah, 
It's been really, really inspiring. So essentially there are student groups and it's not just student groups. It's actually anybody who might come through the University of British Columbia. So it might be faculty or staff or professors, anybody who really has a connection with the university is able to apply for what's called entrepreneurship at UBC, which is basically like a program. And there are two different sort of streams of the program based on what kind of business that you're building. The program is designed basically to help new ventures get ready for becoming a real concern. So they like to take people from like the ideation phase where, you know, they're just sort of like, hey, here's a problem that I see that I think needs to be solved. And so E at UBC's mandate is really to talk through like, well, who would pay for this solution? And how would you manage scaling this? And what is your actual value proposition? You know, so problem solution, differentiator, all those things that help a business kind of find its feet in the very beginning, you know, when they're, when they're just sort of thinking about it or when they maybe just have a landing page, but that's it. And so it's really meant to kind of give a boost to people who have a great idea and want to do something about it, but aren't really sure where to start. It provides learning and access to resources and access to potentially funding opportunities as well as you advance through the program. But the idea is really just to get just to get ventures from the, hey, I've got a good idea phase into the, hey, I'm a going concern phase. And so all that that entails. So it's really been cool because they have three different events, like studios is what they're called. And so the studio that I'm focused on is obviously the social ventures, as we talked about at the beginning of the interview. All of the ventures that come through that studio are focused on changing the world for the better in some way. That looks a variety of different ways, depending on what kind of problem that they want to solve. But I love that the reason that these companies exist and want to exist is that they have identified a problem and they want to do something about it. And I think that's just, that's so much what we need more of. So it's really, really cool to see that. With these entrepreneurs, right, and their ideas, what sort of leadership development do they get in this program? Or what do you see with their leadership qualities? I think what's really great about programs like this is it in, it encourages people who have, they have a concept around how to make the world better, but they maybe don't have, when they start off anyway, the confidence to, to back that up and say like, I've, I've done 14 ventures and I know exactly how to do this. Well, no, not all of us do. Like I certainly don't, you know, I just, I, I took pieces and I learned from the folks who had gone before me. And so I think that that's really what it's about is like encouraging people to say like, no, you've got a great idea. And now let's see, you know, how we can kind of put some, put some legs under it or put some supports under it in order to, to make you feel like, yeah, you can, you can stand on your own actually in this. And a lot of them are domain experts. And so, you know, it might just be a case of like getting them to kind of trust and lean on that expertise of whatever whatever field that they've decided to to kind of build a venture around. As far as leadership development as well, they do provide tools for things like HR and and those sorts of things that folks will run into. But I think it's I think it's more about in that initial phase, just giving folks the the confidence to like stand up for for what they're doing and say like this is a great thing that I'm that I'm building. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna have the wherewithal to to push this forward because I know that I'm supported by again my community. So I wonder with entrepreneurship as well at the beginning it's almost like your leadership you need as you say that investment into firming up the belief right firming up the belief in your idea and the belief that you can execute it so developing in a sense your self-efficacy then as you become bigger and you've got a team then I imagine there's a different set of qualities that you need to develop as a as a leader 
And then as that evolves, and maybe you're then managing a team of teams, right? So all the team leaders from those teams, then it's a different set of qualities. And I don't think it ever stops. I don't think there's like a, that's it, I'm done now. That's why the, the podcast is called Still Loading, right? Because I firmly believe you never stop learning about leadership development because each particular component of it will always sort of challenge you in the next step. So I wonder, have you seen the transition that a... Um, entrepreneur that you've worked with and helping through these different initiatives have you seen that transition and and like what sort of sort of tips do you have for us about that absolutely I think you know they say that leadership can be a very lonely enterprise and even if you are working through the sort of very beginning of a venture with a startup team you know of three or four even maybe eight or nine people it still can feel like you're going it alone in some ways. If you feel like you're the one, you're the founder and you are the one responsible for making payroll or making sure that everybody's happy and you have all these different stakeholders asking different things of you, that can be a lot of pressure. You can also find yourself in situations where you have a problem that you don't actually know how to solve and you don't feel like you have paths forward through it. And it, that can feel really sticky too. And so I think um, one thing that's really important, one thing that I like to encourage people to do is to basically, like, I hate the word network because it sounds so standoffish in a way, but to build relationships with people who are going through the same things and are at the same phase that they are. I availed myself of CEO roundtables when I was in the early stages of building Coop because it can be really helpful to talk through candidly and with complete, you know, transparency and obviously like discretion about some of the challenges that you're going through. And sometimes those aren't things that you can talk about with your partner or even your co-founders because either it's too sensitive or they're too close to it or you're too close to it or it's too sticky. And so it can really be helpful to lean on community members who are, you know, at that same phase and you can kind of like go along together in a way and kind of co-learn from, you know, and I, I also had experiences where within those CEO roundtables, there would be someone who was facing an issue that I had never faced before, but listening to them and the way they talked about it and the way they processed how they were going to deal with it really helped me and really leveled me up in terms of like, oh, well, if that happens to me someday, here's how I might navigate it, or I can take this great inspiration from what they're doing and, and kind of learn from it that way. So I really think, again, it's it's really all about like community and building solid relationships. You know, networking is, is not a term I like, as I said, but I think like if you can find commonalities with people who might handle things the same way you do, or might handle things a different way you do, but that can take you in a new direction that you need, then I think that that's really, really positive and, and useful. So I definitely encourage people to like, as much as possible, engage with people who have shared values or shared interests or are at a shared level of business growth that they can tap into and learn from and talk to. Thank you for that. I think that's a really valuable insight that you've got there and I guess my sort of question to that would be how would people find those people <laughs> yeah I mean so it's a really good question I think you know certainly incubators like what we're building at UBC is a good is a good start so if there are any sort of institutional programs that they can start with certainly in large cities there are tons of these different kinds of programs and I, I think that they are often sorted out by sort of topic areas so there might be you know within London there's probably a dozen impact accelerators for instance or incubators as the case may be but things like that can 
definitely help. So I would I would recommend that folks, you know, look into what's institutionally available to them or like what groups they've been involved with, if they have a business that they've worked with before, they may have resources that they can tap into. So I recommend that. And then I would also say probably social media and Facebook groups can also be useful to kind of identify the people who might be able to to help you. So, you know, those kinds of things like I, I recommend Facebook with a little bit of a grain of salt just because of all the the news and stuff that's come out around it. You can find community there. And so like, since that's where a lot of folks are, I think it's a worthwhile place to at least look and see like, are there people here who I can learn from and talk to? I think this is what's so fascinating about like leadership for the digital age, because you could actually learn, you know, like we're talking right now from London and Vancouver coming at you live, right? Well, I mean, you'll hear the recording everyone, but like coming at you live. And actually, I think that is so interesting to be able to connect with people in absolutely different cities, but they're trying things and you start to see a a general global commonality. I think the Mm. next level of that is to almost then really get different cultures because the way a different culture would approach something would probably give you so much insight um, and a different perspective because otherwise it's all Western centric, right? But if you could then leverage like the thinking and learning of everyone else, I mean, that's why I love startups because they are kind of the same anywhere in the world, but you're just approaching it in slightly different ways. But the vibe is generally the same, like vibe check startup. Yeah, I've seen it in Havana, in Buenos Aires. Do you know what I mean? Just everywhere. You talk to people from all over the world and it's the same sort of vibe check. But I guess with startups and obviously this entrepreneur journey, what are the kind of challenges within leadership for the digital age now that we're all sort of remote first what do you see happening there i wanted to uh just comment quickly about what you said earlier about the the idea of being able to access people around the world because i think that is really key when we founded coop we were four co-founders and we were from four different countries none of which was canada so we're from china india pakistan and myself from the us there were two different genders within the team as well But what I found that that really helped us to be able to feel like we were covering more bases, in other words, than if we had all very similar backgrounds and very similar experiences. The fact that we had such different backgrounds, you know, at at times it, it, it brought us into conflict, certainly, because we would have very different ideas about how we should approach things. But it was really just the biggest strength of our founding team was that idea that we really had a lot of different perspectives at the table from the very beginning. And I think that sort of thing is definitely co-indicated with business growth and business success is the idea that I've been talking with one of my clients recently about this and uh, the parable of the elephant, you know, where like the folks are, are approaching the elephant and one feels the trunk and one feels the the side. And so they're identifying it in different ways. And so I really think that having a, a variety of voices at the table is such a huge key to success and something that I strive to to bring up with with whoever I'm, I'm working with. So I just wanted to, to kind of frame that as as something that I think is really key. Globally, I think, you know, we're at a place now where we have greater access than ever to education and connection around the world. And so with that, we we just need to make sure that we're democratizing those opportunities as much as we can. I worked with an entrepreneur last year who does a lot of work. He's originally from Algeria, but his, his desire is really to make sure that educational resources are coming into African countries so that the great innovation that exists in those countries can be supported and not in the way of like, here comes a great huge Western organization parachuting in to tell 
folks how to do things, but actually like supporting the local people who actually know how to do the stuff that needs to be done for their communities. And I found that really inspiring. And I think, you know, he's someone who has worked all over the world. He worked in Tokyo and San Francisco and Vancouver, which is where he and I met. So he saw certainly, I think, where there was a lot of resources and education available for folks in some cities in some parts of the world and then less in others. And so his work now is really focused on making sure that all the resources are available to everybody so that, you know, we're, we're tapping into all the great ideas that exist around the world and make sure that we don't lose any. I think that's really interesting because the paradigm that you're sort of showcasing there is the one of connected leadership, right? As in, he's not telling everyone or, you know, that particular example is not directive. It's not do this and do this and this is how it's going to be, which was the old model of leadership for sure. And and in some cases, it still is very prevalent, right? You have hierarchy in organizations, you have a chain of command, whatever that person at the top says needs to happen, needs to happen. Right. Whereas what he's doing is almost like empowering everyone with what they need to know, because there is all that information available to them. And I think supplemented with what you mentioned about almost the peer power. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I really think that the greatest leaders that I've had, the greatest mentors and and folks that I've had are folks that really act in more of a supportive capacity. So in other words, they're not going to come at you with a didactic solution that they've figured out. And and that's something that I've certainly tried to emulate, you know, in in teams where I've led and and try to lead is how can I support the work that you're doing and how can I make sure that I'm amplifying and I like the metaphor of a table. So if you've got your table, like how can I add legs and like make sure that you're supported or growing or whatever you need to do. I really think that the best leaders actually view themselves as support, support systems. It's great to have a, a visionary, but I think even the best visionaries that I've that I've encountered always seem to find ways to amplify and elevate the folks around them. And that's something that I certainly try to try to emulate as well. Let's talk a little bit about your leadership development journey. Sure. <laughs> There's always the classic one, which I do think is true in the sense of what what was a moment where you had significant challenge that you overcame in your leadership development? I'll give an example from when I was working at a, I worked at a small town newspaper just after journalism school. And it was my first job where I really felt like I had a sense of ownership over what was happening because my previous roles that I did for pay were mostly in administrative work, you know, like executive assistant work and that sort of thing, which was fun and good, but I didn't have a ton of autonomy in terms of what I did. And so this was my first real big, like grown up job, I guess. So I couldn't get over the idea that I needed to run every single thing by my boss. I realized, oh, he's actually paying me to not have to worry about all this stuff. Like he needs to trust that I'll just do it and make the right decision. And that really was, I mean, it was a, it was a great vote of confidence for me. Of course, a young person in my career, I really like leaned on that a lot going forward as, oh yeah, that's right. They don't necessarily want to hold my hand and babysit me through every single decision. They want to know that I have the capacity and the confidence to go and do and make great things happen on their behalf and not have to watch every little thing. Gosh, that was such an important moment and a, and a true pivotal uh, pivotal time for me. So I'm really grateful to that boss for trusting me, but also for being really direct with me about it and saying like, listen, I, I don't have time. I don't have time to do this. So you have to. And so it kind of freed me, but it was also, it just really got my attention, I would say. That sounds like one, a great opportunity for someone developing as well. 
and also great that they were so honest. You know, I think if we were all a bit more honest, we'd actually get a lot more done at work in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's true. Because I, yeah, I think back on that and think like, well, he could have gone on for another six months, you know, shepherding me through every decision that I brought to him, but he probably just would have gotten more and more annoyed about it. And meanwhile, I wouldn't have been learning what I needed to either. So I think that moment that he took to kind of nip it in the bud and say like, here's, here's what needs to happen. And I was like, oh, and it took me like a day or so to get my head around it. And then I was like, oh, okay, I actually, I can do this. That's okay. Yeah, it was, it was really, really empowering for sure. Have you got much experience in working with the entrepreneurs that you do, is there any difference between genders or ages with the leadership styles that they have? I don't know about the entrepreneurs themselves. I think uh, where I'm interested in a growth moment, and this is something that my colleagues and I have been talking a little bit about, is the idea of when when entrepreneurs come in to pitch VCs or other groups for funding or that sort of thing, the questions that we ask, are they more in the promotion space or more in the prevention space? So in the prevention space, that would look like, how are you gonna guard against other competitors coming in and taking part of this pie or that sort of thing? And promotion is more like, you know, where do you see this going to and, and how big is this going to grow? And one of the things that my colleagues and I are, are talking about is whether or not we approach and other folks who are, let's say, like in the VC space or in angel investment fund space. So people who are basically like holding the power or holding the purse strings, as it were, are we approaching founders equitably? Meaning, are we asking promotion and prevention questions in equal measure to founders of all genders and founders of all backgrounds. If we look deeply within ourselves, and this was true of men and women who responded, and we can say, you know, I can say for myself, I might be more inclined to ask prevention questions of a woman founder and promotion questions of a male founder. And why is that? How comfortable am I interrogating the pieces of that that are created by, you know, societal influence that all of us really didn't choose and we don't really have a lot of control over but yet if we become aware of it do we have control to shift that going forward and i think that we do but i think it has to start with you know some kind of crunchy conversations and and maybe like internal interrogation around how, what am I bringing to the table here and am, am I promoting all founders equally? And I, I think that that's really important because as you might know, like access to capital is a, is a tough thing for, for women founders and for founders of color. I think there's a lot of awareness about that right now, but I think there's a little less awareness of what exactly we do about it. And I think it starts with individual conversations and folks, you know, kind of at the personal level inquiring into themselves, how do we, how do we start to shift this? I mean, I think it's remarkable that you and your, your colleagues were having those discussions because something I've been reflecting on recently is, and this actually came up in the in another um, podcast episode with my friend Mo, and it's the idea that a guy is given a job, an opportunity, because he's got potential, but a woman is given a job because she's done it before. She's proven that she's done it. Yeah. So if you think about that yes. over the course of a whole career... If you're always getting a job on potential, you're always kind of just getting pushed outside your comfort zone and you'll step up and you'll make that difference work. Whereas if a woman, you're always, you've always done it and then you're executing on the task, you're not making as many gains because you're not being given those roles that are a bit of a stretch. Obviously just a struggle mm -hmm. with me and my friends, but we were remarking that there's not very often where my female friends have been given a stretch role. 
but yes. often the guys that I speak to who are my friends they were like yeah I had no clue but they were like oh we can see you've got potential <laughs> yeah isn't that interesting yeah so it's kind of the same thing that that we were remarking on my colleagues and I and I think you know I've, I've certainly read uh statistics around when women are applying for jobs, they are less likely than men to say, read, you know, if they read a job description, I forget exactly what the numbers are, but it's something you've probably read this too, right? Like where a male candidate might read a job description and say, oh, I meet three of the 12 requirements, I'll go ahead and apply. And a woman might read it and say, I meet 11 of the 12 requirements, I'm out. So that in and of itself is creating a lot of barriers to, as you say, like that, that idea that if you're being hired into stretch jobs, you're getting promoted and pushed forward all the time. But if you're declining to even apply for jobs and put your hat in the ring, like there's no chance to, to get promoted either. So it's not a, it's one person's fault or the other. It's kind of a both and, and it needs a both and like solution for sure. I think the reason that it, I think it's so fascinating around the conversation you had with your colleagues and then around just, you know, the conversation I had with friends is because I want to shift away the onus on the behavior change being on women and actually more on reflection of people and their assessments, right? So potentially when someone's going for a VC round or they're, you know, going for funding, why is there not a set of questions? So the systemic bias is mitigated against anyway. Yeah. So it's the scoring system and it's it's not just like, yeah, I had a gut feel. It's like, well, you're influencing this discussion because of your inherent biases. So if you actually have a scorecard, you know, like simple HR practices that say, let's, you know, try and be fair and equitable when we're recruiting. Maybe right. those are similar processes that need to happen within the VC conversations and also when it's in internal hires, right? So or like internal promotions, are you really genuinely being fair and equitable or are you actually challenging the design of the system and actually looking at systemic bias? Mm, that's so, that's so, so important, I think. And I think it's really, I think it's really crucial that we are encouraging folks to have those conversations. Your idea of a scorecard is a really good one. Like, I think that they could certainly pick up something like that from, from standard HR practices, as you say. Well, it's like the famous example of the orchestra and no women played in an orchestra and they never got picked and apparently they weren't good enough. Then as soon as they put the blind screen and people auditioned behind a screen so no one could see what they were like. Loads more women got in orchestras. Wow, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yep. Yep. Wow. And at one point I was going to do a test, actually, I was going to do a test on my CV and take away my name and anything that revealed my gender and just put myself down as I, Brannon, and see what, what the return mm -hmm. was going to be. Because... Yeah, I just think things like that are very fascinating. There's only so much I think you can do in terms of your behavior change. Yeah, but it is it is interesting to like think through some of those things and, and to figure out, you know, how much do you want to engage in like playing within the rules that have existed in the past? And how much do you want to push up against that and, and try to expand what can be done? Because I think to your point earlier, like the onus shouldn't necessarily be on women to fix some of these things or, or folks of color to, to fix some of mm -hmm. the things that white supremacy has created. And it is the responsibility of the folks on the other side of the coin, essentially, to, to do that work. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the important bit that needs attention and like real pressure being put upon now. You know, I think that that's going to be the 
the next contentious thing for the next couple of years, especially because, in a sense, the pandemic has leveled a lot of things in terms of presenteeism or like because we're all working from home different mm. things like that it's not completely level please I mean like let's not go into the huge inequalities within that but it is a different playing field the playing field has changed and so because the playing field and the parameters have changed we now are almost going huh so working from home and working remotely it's totally a thing like we don't have to negotiate about this as a benefit in my job so what other things could we start to negotiate and reframe and understand you know what I mean once you change one of the things you can almost it's almost like you know that game with the marbles and you take out the pins (laughs) yes yeah I love that because you're really you're right like I've I've talked a lot about that like just in my personal life about how the pandemic has presented this opportunity to become much more aware and much more purpose-driven, I guess, about where my time is going and what I'm putting my focus and energy on. And I think that's true in a variety of circumstances. Like professionally, that's certainly true as well. Like, as you've said, like in uh, in some of these sort of legacy systems that have been set up, we, we do this thing this way because that's the way it's already been, that's always been done. But now the pandemic has become this, this great sort of shakeup that allows us to kind of say like, actually, there might be a new way to do that. And, and we have the ability and privilege sort of to really think through meaningfully what that is, which is a great gift, actually. I've certainly, like I think anybody else, kind of leaned on how dark and hard this time has been, but I think that there are those gifts within it and it's nice to become cognizant of those as much as we can. Yep, absolutely. And we are nearly at time, but we have one more thing that we'd love to know from you today. And what is your sort of top tip for anyone thinking about their own leadership for this digital age? I love the book When by Daniel Pink. I read it a couple of years ago and it's basically, I think the the subtitle is something like the scientific reasons why you do the things you do, but it's essentially talking about how your circadian rhythms affect the types of work that you're good at at certain times of the day. And to me, it was absolutely mind blowing because I never realized that, you know, I have a certain tendency based on when I wake up and when I, when I sort of have a dip in the afternoons. And he says, you can be much more strategic and apply that once you're aware of it, you can apply it to your workday in a way that is really, really useful. I've just, I've found it, it was a total game changer to me. And especially with the pandemic, because we have a little more open schedules now, and we have that ability to kind of decide what our days are going to look like a little bit more than we may be used to if we were going to a job from, you know, eight to five or whatever. That's a great book to read and just kind of understand like your own personal desire to 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 work and and when and what types of work you do best when so yeah I would say that one what a great recommendation I'm definitely going to have to have a read of that and I agree especially if you know everything is so fluid that you have to almost have better self-awareness about what works for you so that you can be your best self and bring your best self to work and everything totally yeah yeah that idea of like being motivated intrinsically and 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 making sure that you're moving projects forward that you want to move forward that are important to you final thing then with your consultancy what's the work that you do now and how can people get in touch with you 
Oh, yeah. The website is laneedits.com, L-A-N-E-E-D-I-T-S.com. And I essentially do ghostwriting of memoirs and newsletters and any really other form of writing that folks might need for, I, I particularly like to work with impact entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs in general, change makers and activists, and just anybody who's interested in social justice, but also artists. And, you know, so really anybody who's busy making the world better in some ways is kind of who I want to talk to. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to chat with folks. Yeah, because you were saying to me before, you noticed that these people were super passionate about what they were doing and the changes that they wanted to make, but they they needed support and help with crafting that story. And that's kind of what you do with these entrepreneurs. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that thing where they're doing all this really cool stuff and it's creating really great stories, yet they don't have time to tell the stories because they're busy doing all the cool stuff. And so that's kind of where I imagine, you know, this consultancy comes in and kind of supports again with that moment of like, I've got a great story. I don't have time to get it out there. So that's, that's why it exists. Fantastic. So everyone, if you need a story and you need it crafted by a magical pair of hands, please get in touch with Amanda. I'll put everything below <laughs> i'll get with angela i'll get everything in the in the bits below but thank you for this conversation it's been an absolute joy to get to know you and and chat we were able to have a little chat beforehand so we got to know each other a little bit and it's been a lovely experience so thank you so much and thank you for sharing your work and your entrepreneurship journey and also the thoughts that you have around leadership it's great to find someone as passionate as i am about this topic Amazing. Thank you so much. It's really cool to connect with you too. And I love what you're building here. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to keep listening. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support this podcast, please share it with others. Share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, anyone you think who might benefit from listening. Post about it on social media as well, or leave a rating and review. And please subscribe to catch all the latest updates and episodes. You can also find us on Instagram at Still Loading Podcast. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Bye.